Hello and welcome to your Over the Farmgate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian. I'm your host, Olivia Midgley. We'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Just make sure you subscribe on your favourite platform. On the show this week, we're talking trees. Forestry values have rocketed in the last few years, but is it a trend that can keep growing? And can trees really save the planet? I speak to James Adamson, Head of Forestry Investment at Savills. That's coming up later. But first, and with new agricultural policies shaking up how farmers are paid for the non-food benefits they provide, like ecosystem services, water and air quality, and helping us meet our ambitions on net zero, how do we put a value on all these things? Well, it's been a sticking point, but DEFRA is trialling different metrics which could soon underpin the new payment schemes. So who's behind them all and how do they work? Well, Jess Fredenberg has been finding out. You're still ploughing on, and so are we. Get Farmer's Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through fginsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmer's Guardian. Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com slash subscriptions today. Imagine if every farmer in the world used a set of universal criteria to measure their sustainability. And imagine if this could be used by consumers to make choices and governments to allocate payments. Well, that's an ambition of a project by a group of farmers and the Sustainable Food Trust. And England is where it might all start, since DEFRA is currently trialling these sustainability metrics as a possible way of underpinning the new Environmental Land Management Scheme that will replace BPS and the current Agri-Environment Schemes. Dairy farmer Robert Craig has helped design the metrics and is now trialling them for DEFRA on his farms in Cumbria. I spoke with him just before Christmas about how it was going and how it might all work in practice. And we'll hear from him later. But first, here's Patrick Holden, farmer and founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust, to explain more about the idea behind the metrics. Patrick, in a nutshell, what are sustainability metrics and why do we need them? Well, in order to measure the impact of our farming system, we need sustainability metrics. And by metrics, I mean uh, all the areas where our farming practices have an impact, namely soil, water, greenhouse gas emissions, energy and resource use, nutrient cycling, crop and livestock management, obviously, uh, biodiversity, and also the wider impact of the farming system on social and cultural factors, such as the number of people we employ. And if you think about it, in the future, we're going to have three sources of income. We're going to have the income from the food products that we sell. We will have, hopefully, if they ever resolve, DEFRA ever resolve the um, ELM scheme, we'll have some income from the public purse. And finally, we'll probably have income uh, from the private sector for managing, for instance, our soil carbon uh, or maybe our biodiversity. And in each of those cases, we need to be able to, to measure the impact of our farming system on the balance sheet. And then hopefully we can be paid if we do well and paid less well if we diminish the balance sheet or cause pollution. Because I guess it's fair to say that at the moment there is no system for doing that really, is there? Well, like all the other farmers listening to this, we are are subject to a whole series of annual audits. 
in my case, I'm an organic mixed dairy farmer, so I'm um, certified by the Soil Association, both for the farm and because we produce cheese also for my cheese production. I'm certified by Red Tractor. The Welsh Government, because we farm in West Wales, are uh, obviously wanting to get collect data because they are giving me the, the, the uh, single farm payment and we're also in a glass deer stewardship scheme. So in each of those cases, I have an audit. And then because we're selling cheese as well, we have other audits. And although I'm audited five times a year, at the end of the painful, expensive, bureaucratic process, I know nothing, to be honest, about whether my farming system was better for biodiversity or soil carbon or greenhouse gas emissions uh, than it was last year. And of course, there are now a whole range of sustainability tools being introduced. And in some cases, uh, supermarkets and others uh, ask us to use them. For instance, carbon audit tools, um, the Cool Farm tool is just one such example. But they all overlap. They're all using different categories of measurement. And so therefore, it's pretty confusing for governments, for um, investors, uh, for retailers and food companies. And finally, for the consumer as to what type of food or type of farming system is better and which is worse. And to rectify that, a group of farmers and land managers got together, the Sustainable Food Trust uh, coordinated this process about five years ago. Why don't we take it upon ourselves to develop what we called a harmonised framework of categories and metrics for measuring the impact of our farming systems? Fast forward five years today, and we are doing quite well. We're in a DEFRA test and trial near it, nearing completion. The Welsh Government are very interested in requiring an annual sustainability audit as a precondition for the receipt of their uh, public purse support after Brexit. One example of the progress we are making is that we have signed a memorandum of understanding with Leafmark, who are very interested in integrating uh, the categories and the metrics into their uh, farm sustainability assessment. And we are also working with um, a company called Hummingbird uh, with a grant uh, to, from the government uh, to develop a farmer-friendly app, which hopefully will make the process of collecting this data easier. The investment community are interested, banks are interested, and now several supermarkets are interested too, because everyone realises and agrees really that in the area of uh, accounting, we have a single international language for profit and loss accounting. Well, why should we not develop an international set of protocols for farm sustainability assessment? That's our objective. It sounds really exciting, actually, and quite revolutionary. I mean, how, how exactly, if you're a farmer, like how exactly would this work? Like, for example, what are the, you mentioned the different categories there of, of measurement of sustainability, you know, what are they? And how would a farmer be, um, be measuring those on their farm? Well, yes, that's a, a good question. And in relation to the DEFRA tests and trials, we've found during the era, era of COVID, that actually, it's perfectly possible to do this by Zoom. So we've got some experts who are uh, skilled in collecting the data and feeding it into our software, uh, which at the moment is only an Excel spreadsheet, but we are working to develop a, to a tool which we think will make it more farmer-friendly. So essentially, let's take one example, soil. The metrics that we would need to gather would be the soil organic matter or soil carbon, uh, the soil infiltration rate of water, 
and the earthworm count for soil biodiversity. Those are the three high-level metrics which we thought were possible for farmers to uh, record. And uh, our advisors would help the farmer uh, get hold of that data and advise them on how they could record it if they didn't already have it. Because, of course, many farms already have much of this data because we're all filling in all these audits, as I mentioned earlier. And the process would would be introduced, as it is with the DEFRA tests and trials, by the advisor. Then the farmer would go about collecting the data. And if there are problems, then uh, obviously the advisor is available to help. And it would be, hopefully, our aim would be that there would be one farm audit per year for each farmer and that data would provide information to governments, to certifiers, to food companies and to retailers who might use the score, the sustainability score, perhaps on food labelling. So imagine, let's say, uh, a food label in a supermarket. It might be in one of the existing schemes, organic or leaf or red tractor, but there could be a sustainability score. Imagine it was out of 100. Let's say there were 10 points for each of the 10 categories that I mentioned. Let's say my score might be 71 this year, uh, a bit poor on water management, maybe stronger on soil quality. So I'd be able to see those numbers and next year I'd want to be 72 or 73. And the principle would be that everyone's in, it's a common harmonised language, so I would be able to talk to another farmer in the eastern counties of England or even in Australia and say, what's your sustainability score? And that common language could be used for other mechanisms as well. For instance, on the trade front, we're having this thoroughly depressing discussion at the moment about chlorinated chicken. Well, if we had this sustainability audit in place, we could then, or the British government could then say to the American uh, negotiators, well, we don't want any products with a, a sustainability score lower than X. And that would be the threshold below which the farmers that wanted to import into our uh, country, if, it, if the product wasn't banned altogether, would have to pay a tariff. That sounds really exciting, actually. And of course, we've got uh, COP26 is, is going to be happening in 2021 now, we hope. Uh, are you likely to be trying to take these sustainability met- metrics to COP26? I think it would be terrific if there was a discussion around this at the COP26 or indeed at the forthcoming UN Food Summit. Because at both of those gatherings, they're international, so it's not just about poor old Britain and Brexit and and the narrow self-interest of one country. It's about creating an international framework for measuring sustainability. And if we're going to have a kind of Paris-style agreement for food, which is what I think we need right now, if we're going to um, use the capacity of farms to be soil carbon banks, for instance, we desperately need these internationally harmonised metrics to be able to judge whether our country, any country, would be making progress in terms of what the French government introduced at the COP21 summit in Paris, namely the four per thousand uh, scheme, which basically set targets for soil carbon sequestration for all countries in the world. And we now know that if everybody, if all the farmers of the world uh, stored as much carbon as was possible uh, on the soils on their farms through changed management, we could probably take out up to 100 parts of CO2 out of the atmosphere. But we need to measure it because you can't manage what you don't measure. 
That was Patrick Holden at the Sustainable Food Trust. Now let's head to Cumbria to hear how the trials have been going. Uh, my name is Robert Craig. I'm a dairy farmer up in the north of England in Cumbria and Northumberland. We run three dairy units, around 1,500 cows. Um, industry level involvement is uh, board of directors at First Milk and currently vice chair, uh, trustee of the Royal Association of British Dairy Farmers. And I also represent First Milk at uh, Dairy UK, where I chair the Farmer Forum um, uh, at Dairy UK. So, Robert, you've been involved with developing the sustainability metrics with the Sustainable Food Trust from the beginning, and you're now trialling those on your farm. Uh, how exactly is that is that working out? What are the measurements that you're using, and how are you practically going about that? So, we've we've highlighted um, uh, a range of categories, uh, which then then can be tested through. Um, using measurements uh, of, of various indicators actually on farm so um, there's 10 different categories um, and without going into too much detail I mean it's um, based around productivity so obviously we're, we're food producers and then we're measuring all the all the key indicators actually that that would have uh, an effect on that productivity so soil water um, you know energy and resource efficiency nutrient management and nutrient balancing a bit about um, plant and crop health, um, and then we're measuring biodiversity, and of course uh, the social and human effects of what we do as well within the business, both within the business and you know how we affect the local uh, community as well. So, for instance, if it, if it's soil, um, we're we're taking soil tests and then comparing those soil tests with previous soil tests to arrive at a at a score. So we're looking at soil organic matter. We're, we're doing um, visual soil tests, so VES, visual evaluation of soil structure. Um, we're looking at soil biodiversity, so we're counting earthworms, but not just counting them, looking at the different types of earthworms we've got, looking at the different generations, different ages of earthworms. We're looking at measurement or, or practices that we might undertake uh, during the farming cycle uh, in terms of soil erosion. Are we doing things to prevent soil erosion? Uh, yeah, I mean, we score particularly well on that because we're pretty much all permanent pasture, but farms that are maybe growing uh, crops uh, and then overwintering bare soils would possibly score less on that. So there's a, a lot of detail behind every, every category. Within this given month, what are the kinds of things that you're going to be doing on the farm as part of the sustainability metrics? Okay, so so we're already involved in a series of um, activities through through Nestle because we produce uh, milk on one of the farms for Nestle. So we are. Uh, if you look at the results for this particular business, we're we're really weak on biodiversity. Uh, well, our major weaknesses are biodiversity and nutrient management. Uh, the biodiversity side of it, it, it's not surprising because this farm is a it's a fairly bleak. Uh, block of land that, that was um, first broken up after the Second World War. There was no hedges, no walls on it, uh, no real environmental features. So we're, along with Nestle, we're, we're starting a major hedge planting uh, process. We've planted four um, hectares of woodland in the last three or four years. Um, so we're doing, I think, I think three and a half to four kilometres of hedges starting this year. So we're starting to plant hedges shortly after Christmas. Um, and we've got a few more trees to plant also. So it's, 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 um, it's about, you know, it really highlights the weaknesses of the farm as it stands now and, and then really clearly points you in a direction whereby you can improve on these weaknesses, um, uh, you know, going forward. In terms of 
time and what you need to do as a farmer. How, how are you finding that at the moment when you're testing it? So I think from the outset, what became really important to everyone that was involved in the project was that it, uh, whatever we ended up with had to be really, it had to be good and it had to do the job really well, but it had to be simple uh, and easy to understand. So although we're at, we're at quite a, a clunky sort of Excel-based um, scheme at the moment, the, the ambition is to get all that onto a really simple app that can pull in information that already exists. So there are parts of what we're measuring that are already there, sort of soil testing, if you like, and, you know, the amount of energy that we use, be that, you know, hydrocarbon through fuel or fertilizer or electricity or whatever. A lot of that information already exists. It's a case of pulling that all together uh, and making it really simple. We're not, we're not there yet, but I think that that's the next stage. And that's a really exciting stage where we can ultimately end up with something that that is really user friendly, um, and that's a level of technology that's that's beyond me. But you know, it's relatively commonplace now, in that um, people can develop these apps that can pull data from various sources and then combine it all together to, to paint a really accurate picture. So I know sp- speaking to to Patrick, and we heard from Patrick earlier, uh, the ambition is very much to be a global set of metrics that can like a kind of universal system. How have you gone about making those metrics into something that could be as applicable to say, like you say, a Cumbrian dairy farmer, as say I don't know a, a banana grower in South America, or you, you know somebody with completely different type of climate landscapes resources at hand yeah and i think this is this is probably what took the most time at the beginning really so we looked at what was already out there what what are the you know how what do we already have to do as farmers so all the various farm assurance and certification schemes that are out there but also we looked at a group of sustainability tools that measure um you know, it was supposedly measure how well we're doing in terms of sustainable uh, food production. And then we did a gap analysis of those tools to see, you know, how they could be improved. And that helped inform us as to what was important um, as a group of farmers and land managers, what actually is important to our own businesses and, you know, what do we really need to focus on? What are the key indicators, if you like, as to, you know, how well we're doing in terms of long-term sustainable businesses because you know this is whether it's productivity or whether it's soil or biodiversity it's what is long-term sustainable for the businesses and you arrive at a, at a, at a very a very common set of principles there that, that are as applicable to a banana grower in the Windward Islands uh, to a Cumbrian dairy farmer and yes you you have different measurements that, that obviously you've got different you know geographical differences but the key principles are, are the same whether you're producing food the other side of the world or you're producing food in Europe. And I, I guess the, the key thing for consumers but also farmers who want to be able to make use of this is that obviously you wouldn't be comparing uh, you know Cumbrian milk with uh, Ecuadorian bananas or something when you go into a shop you would be comparing potentially say uh, beef from scotland with beef from um, brazil or something you know i mean again like how do the metrics work in in that sense yeah so um if if you were looking at um beef or lamb produced from long-term uh, permanent pasture in the british isles compared to uh, similar beef protein being produced in brazil potentially from um, land that has been reclaimed from forestry. You know, all of that could be easily built into these principles. 
that, and obviously you've got a travel aspect there as well and possibly a water aspect that then would easily flag up the um, the less sustainable option of um, of beef produced you know in distant lands then imported into the UK compared to locally produced uh, and sustainably produced because it it isn't it isn't just the production system either it's 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 about the spin-off effects if you like the externalities of that production system as well so you know the externalities of, of brazilian produced beef that's transported you know halfway around the world that then has you know issue issues because of deforestation but also that that beef isn't adding to the local community it's not employing people locally so there are, there are different, you know, if you like, um, ways of, of measuring all the various uh, aspects of the production system. Like we said, DEFRA is interested in this and actively working on this with you. Do you think that this is the, the solution to underpinning ELMS? Yeah, no, I, think it, I think it could be. It, it's, it's, still, it's still relatively early days considering where we've got to. There's a lot of work gone into the background of this, but as we transition away from what is a, a, if you like, a really benign kind of area payment type system and we transition towards something that's much more fit for purpose. <clears throat> that gives us time to develop this further. So so hopefully we've demonstrated with the progress we've made so far uh, that, that the principles are correct. Um, the next, the number crunching part of it and the usability and the functionality of this will develop further as time goes on. And then hopefully we can we can then have a, a process or a tool or whatever you want to call it that really accurately um, describes a business and makes it relatively straightforward for government to incentivize good practice. I mean, what this does is it actually shows the user how, how well the business is performing in a range of categories. If there was support from government to incentivize the correct behavior for the weaknesses, then you've got a you've got a real win there, whereby you're not waiting for the market to provide the funding. Hopefully, government can then inject funding to further um, accelerate the transition towards more sustainable farming. Whereas at the moment, there's very little reward for doing the right thing, uh, and the fear is, I suppose, where we've got to with uh, with um, the development of, of elms that that people that are already doing the right thing possibly get left behind. And, and there's only funding there for people that are actually making changes. We've really got to look yeah. after those that are already doing the right thing as much as um, incentivizing farmers to make changes and move in a more sustainable direction. Thanks, Jez. And thanks to Robert and Patrick. We'll have more on the DEFRA trials over the next couple of weeks. Now, sticking with the green theme, the forestry market, as I said earlier, is hot right now, with prices in some areas increasing by nearly 50% in two years. So what's driving the market and how did trees become a political football? Hello, my name's James Adamson and I deal with forestry investment matters at Savills, which is generally buying, selling and valuing of commercial forestry across the UK. James, the forestry sector really seems to be just going great guns at the moment with some really heady prices being reported. What are you seeing in, in terms of values? Forest values have been rising for quite a long time now. The last time there was a, a measurable downturn probably was at the end of the 1990s. So we've actually seen rising values, albeit gently rising values, probably since 2001, 2002. Uh, there's no doubt over the last 12 to 24 months that rise in value has accelerated quite considerably. And I think it's probably fair to say that 
good quality commercial forests may have risen by as much as 50% in value since the start of 2019. Wow. Um, but there is variation. It depends, really. There's no such thing as an average forest, really. They're all quite individual. So some will have risen in value more quickly than others. Um, and some regions, some areas are more attractive to purchasers and therefore have higher prices than others. Mm-hmm. And what sort of prices are, are being paid here? Obviously, there's a, there's a huge range, isn't there? But can you just give some sort of indication? They are so uh, very different across the country. But I mean, if you take a broad average of all of the sort of traded stock, which isn't a huge amount, it's only about 12, 15,000 hectares a year, but all of the traded stock of commercial woodland, if you took that back to probably 2002, that average would have looked like something like £1,500 per hectare, maybe slightly more. If you looked at that 10 years ago, it was probably five or £6,000. This year, it could be pushing an average of £17,000. So quite a dramatic difference from the position 20 years ago. But in context, a poor mixed conifer forest in the north of Scotland might be worth £7,000 a hectare. A prime investment forest in the Scottish borders might be worth over £20,000 a hectare. And your sort of typical mixed farm woodland, uh, if, it's, if it contains commercial trees, will be more valuable. But if, it, if it's broad leaves or just mixed woodland, probably worth five or £6,000 a hectare. There is a very wide range, but across most categories, we've seen strong price rises. And in timber forests um, in particular, the strongest price rises. What has been quite interesting is that in terms of the typical valuation of a, of a forest, the older the timber, the more valuable it should be. Mm-hmm. But actually what we've noticed in the market for the last well, probably a few years, I would say, is that younger age timber is becoming much more valuable as part of the, the general valuation mix. So what was a very traditional sort of price age curve with very with lower values when the trees were young, moving through to higher values as the trees matured, that, that line is flattening. So we're seeing more money advancing towards the younger age of timber as a proportion of the price than would have been the case before. That's being driven, I think, by two factors. Firstly, there's very positive outlook for the price of timber going forward. So there's expectation that when these trees reach maturity, they will sell into a much better timber market. Therefore, there is essentially a degree of speculation on price. But but also the way plant, plant breeding and improved establishment techniques and planting techniques have, have developed in the last 25 years has been very, very positive. The trees that we plant commercially now are growing much better in their environment than the the previous generation. So we're seeing a yield gain. We're seeing much stronger growth in younger timber than would have been the case when a lot of the current generation of woodlands were planted 40, 50 years ago. And that's leading people to be quite excited about the growth prospects and therefore the future output product and production prospects and therefore capital mm-hmm. value that's linked to these commercial woods but that's very much a trait of the commercial productive timber forest yeah that's really interesting that there's that confidence there i guess because of you know these better yielding varieties isn't it as well we grow most of our commercial timber is is spruce sitka spruce some norway spruce um douglas fir scots pine but the, the sort of commercial timber species are relatively limited and there's a very strong balance in favour of Sitka spruce, which is a, a high yielding, relatively fast, short rotation conifer, typically mm-hmm. 35 to 55 years. 
But even in that already well-performing tree, recent um, evidence is suggesting that it's getting better and better. Excellent. And you talk about this rise in, in values. What do you think is driving this? Does it, is it a range of factors? One of the things that you have to understand about forestry valuation, it's very different to the valuation of agricultural land. And in the valuation of agricultural land, it's the quality of land and the range of crops or the or livestock enterprises that that land is able to sustain that dictates the value. So, you know, grade two arable land is always going to be more valuable than grade three to arable land. In forestry, the crop, because it's a, a crop that exists in the ground for a very long period of time, perhaps 50 years, is actually valued as part of the asset capital. So the one of the things that underpins value is, is, is what we call the store of value principle. You, you have a biological store of value at any point in time that you can measure that is the sort of bank of timber that you have growing up. And so that underpins the capital value. So that, that there, are, there are effectively, there are a number of factors that impact on value. Firstly, location and quality of land and therefore ability to grow particular species or, or quality of timber is important, of course. That's the same with agriculture, but it's important in forestry. But, but generally in forestry, it's to do more with the, the species of tree, the stock of tree, the age of tree, the growth rate of tree, the timber price you are likely to get on harvesting that tree, the ease of access to a range of competing timber markets, um, when that might occur. So is it, have you got harvesting in the next five years or is it still 25 years away or is it nice and spread out across all of the years, which is ideally what you want? So a number of things interact with that that make the sort of productive capacity and potential of a forest a primary driver of value. But of course, it's a property market and like all property markets, there is a supply demand function that goes on in the market. So what we have seen in the last few years is that the supply of woodland and forest sold in the UK has been a relatively finite thing. Um, it's, it's averaging about 14,000, 15,000 hectares a year. And that, if you look back for the last 10 years, has been a relatively constant figure. But at the same time, the interest in forestry as an investment and the amount of new investors and new people wanting to enter the space has increased quite considerably. There is a supply-demand um, imbalance, which means that there's a degree of competition in any sale, and that helps drive the price. But ultimately, whilst the price is advancing, and to an extent at a very fast pace, good forestry assets are still able to underpin that price advance with a store of timber that will put will support that sort of level of pricing the difficulty i see in the market at the moment potentially is that there are people paying high prices for woodland that isn't of the quality or doesn't have the productive potential to underpin that level of pricing and that's where in some instances the market dynamic is beginning to undertake or overtake sorry the production and the forecasting dynamic we know this move to decarbonise the economy and this emphasis on meeting net zero carbon emissions has become a key driver for many businesses now, hasn't it? I mean, how can farmers and landowners who have good forestry land or, or already established woodland, how can they tap into this? Well, it, there are several ways. But first of all, at the moment, the carbon framework in the UK looks at new planting. It doesn't look at, look at existing woodland. So to an extent, you can set aside existing woodland from that 
part of the um, part of the equation. Although, of course, if it's growing and it's managed timber, it will be sequestering carbon. There's just no way of trading that existing carbon at the moment. It, 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 it's locked in the system. So putting that to aside, most of the focus on the, the, the carbon sequestration potential in, in, in the UK in, in the woodland market is on land use change from agriculture to woodland to forestry. Um, it's supported um, through uh, a mechanism called the Woodland Carbon Code that allows you to verify and sell uh, things called woodland carbon units for value um, at a point in time uh, early in the, the life of the project. And then somebody who has an offsetting requirement can buy your carbon units off you, you get paid for it, uh, and that the, the, they then can claim the benefit of that offset against whatever they're doing that's required them to have that offset so that's a market that's been around now for 10 years or so it's a private market it's still a relatively small market and and to an extent it's not universally employed by people planting trees because it requires you when you're selling your carbon units to grant a right to the purchaser of the units over a long period of time and 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 my view is that that's unattractive to quite a lot of landowners. They don't want to cede control to somebody else, especially as there may be some potential for you know markets and carbon for existing woodland to change in future. So it doesn't suit everybody's circumstances, but where you want short-term income, then you can sell your carbon units and, and that market's developing all the time. In England, as opposed to in other parts of the UK, there's also a, a government mechanism called the Woodland Carbon Guarantee Fund, which is a, a sort of an accelerator fund for carbon trading in the marketplace. It basically follows the same principle, but it defers the payment to later on in the lifespan of the woodland. And it allows you to stagger the payment and to retest the market price at that point in time. So it's actually, a, I think, a much better mechanism, albeit it's only available in England. And it's it's competitive and it occurs three or four times a year. I can't quite remember. And we've had the first two auctions at the, earlier this year, one at the beginning and one in the middle. And it's definitely attracting interest. So I think if you, and then of course the third way of, is to plant the trees and just account for the carbon yourself as a sort of a PR stroke environmental improvement. You don't have to trade it to someone else. You can just, because you're still sequestering just as much carbon as the person who's traded it. But ultimately, that's just something that's for your own personal benefit. And, and do you see demand for these sorts of partnerships increasing as we, you know, we get closer to trying to meet these net zero targets? Do you think there's going to be, do you think farmers could perhaps be approached by different companies competing to get these? Almost certainly. But I mean, ultimately, I do think that we've, we've always got to be slightly careful that I see the word carbon in my forestry investment world as a disruptor. You know, the market without it is doing incredibly well. And, and people who've come to plant trees have generally looked at planting productive commercial woodlands that have very strong future value prospects. Now, most of the focus, not all of it and not entirely, but most of the focus in the sort of carbon driven planting at the moment is environmental woodland. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what people have to understand is at the moment, the value of the woodlands they're creating in terms of capital value carbon aside is much more limited in its future potential than the value of commercial woodland. So what people have to make sure they don't do is chase the short term income 
for, for potentially some longer term uh, pain because they haven't created the right sort of woodland that the market wants. Now, it may be that in 25 years time, under a sort of a new natural capital valuation cycle, that type of value trumps the commercial value. But at the moment, the commercial value trumps the environmental value several times over. So it's just understanding where things are going. And the difference with forestry compared to a lot of things is that we have to think 30 years in in, in the future. Mm -hmm. Because we're talking about trees that will, at the very least, be in the ground for probably 30 years, but some of them will be in the ground indefinitely. So moving the thought process forward in leaps of at least 10 years is quite important in the forestry world. And I think the difficulty at the moment is the carbon world isn't thinking like that. It all has to be immediate. And I just think we have to be entirely confident that we're going in the right direction before we jump off now. That said, should farmers be considering planting land at the moment? Well, yes, they should, because, you know, they, there are for a number of reasons. The reason might be investing in some future sort of pension scheme for themselves. So they're planting commercial woodland that will be uh, rising in value going forward and, and perhaps productive when they need their pension. Every farm, I think, in the country benefits from some tree planting. Some farms will benefit from very little because they will be essentially arable farms or they won't require any more trees. Some farms, upland sheep farms, could easily probably find 100, 200 hectares where they could plant commercial timber. So I think there is opportunities. I just think because it's a land use change, there has to be clarity of objective before you take the decision. And at the moment, that I I think is, is being slightly muddied. We seem to have gone from the position in the forestry world of being a sort of a reasonably dirty, for want of a better word, land use 15 years ago to potentially saving the planet. (laughs) And people are just drawing a straight line from A A getting to B and they're not really thinking about the journey in between. And I do think that it's quite important that we understand what the opportunities really are. Yeah, it does seem that at the moment, especially planting trees is the solution to everything. And it's just not, that's just not the case, is it? They've got to be in the right place, as you say, and it's such a long-term game as well. Well, it's, it, it's quite important that we protect the primary agricultural assets of the country. That I, I should be an absolute, other than, you know, a little bit of planting here and there. But actually, what, when you really stand back and look at all the different restrictions and all different land use requirements and conservation designations and environmental designations and climatic controls, there isn't a huge amount of land available that really converts into tree planting. We can't really plant trees above 500 metres above sea level, maybe push that to 600 for some form of tree line native woodland in a non-commercial sense. But, you know, we're, and, and you know, we're really probably restricted to anything that is from the sort of permanent grass and up, therefore. So it's, it, it still should remain not completely, but primarily an upland land use. Um, but, but there's a lot of other competing land uses in the uplands. So um, it's not a panacea. And at the moment, I think it's advertised as being a panacea. But ultimately, you know, you can take a piece of hill land that's worth £2,000 an acre you can convert it to commercial forestry and have in 25 years time a piece of maturing commercial forestry that's worth £15,000 an acre or whatever it happens to be. At the moment, agricultural values are not mirroring that because you know the price of hill land, if you discounted the influence of the forestry market, has been a relatively static thing for some time now, if not slightly back. 
but then you know we can't plant all the hill lime because we you know we still as a species have to eat and much as i love trees and forestry i would think that eating a sick spruce tree would be completely unpalatable <laughs> i think i have to agree with james there lamb chops over spruce trees any day well that's it for this week we hope you enjoyed the show why not subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes of over the farm gate until next week from us at fg thank you for listening we hope you stay safe and well goodbye for now Bye.